gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of the... Oh, come on, RJ. That's your cue, bro. I'm with RJ Show, presented Ooh. by myself, Alec Rovitz, and RJ <laughs> Falcioni, who seems to miss the, the cue to say, I'm with RJ. Well, you know, I got to shout out my co-host here, Alec. He does a great job prepping notes. Oh, oh, wait a minute. No, he, he does... Uh... Oh, you never, you never give me, you never give me the cue cards. You know, you just put me on the spot. You're like, this guy's this this famous talent. You know, he's known across the world. You don't need, you don't need his last name. You just need RJ. I mean, if you know RJ, you're good. But you never, you never give me the cue cards. You're always hanging me out to dry, Alec. I don't, I don't know what we're gonna do, bro. If 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 you just leave yourself as as this famous, well known guy, blah 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 blah. If you can't improv, come on, dude. I'm gonna have to start. You're, 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 now you're going. Now you're picking the wrong. Now you're picking the wrong directions. Improv is my middle name. Get out of here. All righty. Anyway, anyway, what's cooking, dude? <laughs> Not too much, man. How are you doing in the uh, dreary old? Are you uh, are you preparing to give me some information on what America might look like next year, dude? I, so I got this text like 30 minutes ago. I'm going to read this word for word for the listeners because I thought this was someone fucking with me. So it's like a friend of a friend. And she goes, <laughs> she goes, yo, I had a thought. And I respond, I have many. Thanks for sharing. And she said, if I were you, I would stay in London and never come back to America again. And I said, I can't tell if that's because you possibly don't like me or if you're actually being serious. Uh, and she goes, no, I'm actually serious. Like, this week was terrible. Stay in London. Like, I like you, by the way. Haha. <laughs> so, yeah, dude, I don't know what the move is. I'm kind of contemplating right now. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, uh, I, I, I just, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but, um, you know, that's not, that's, that's, I don't want to say that's not what we're here to talk about because we're here to talk about the law, cannabis law, and what that means uh, with our guest today, Christina Bucola. Uh, my good friend, and um, we will, uh, you know, learn some good stuff today about uh, what it means to be a cannabis lawyer, or maybe uh, how many different types of cannabis lawyers there are out there. So, uh, but man, at the end of the day, you know, uh, I don't know, it, part of me wants to be hopeful and say peace will be restored and all this other stuff. And part of me just wants to continue on with the the tirade against uh, everybody involved. But, you know, I was just looking at something earlier that said that uh, the Pentagon instructed the National Guard not to uh, hand out riot gear or interact with the quote unquote protesters um, for the uh, f- unless they were given approval by the Trump administration. And it was so obvious the other day that the Trump administration had orchestrated this entire thing. So um, I-, I would be very surprised if if Mr. Trump doesn't end up uh, being hung for treason at this point, it, it, you know, it's a slow to unroll type of situation. But when this unravels, uh, I mean, unless Joe Biden pardons him, which uh, Biden will then seal his own fate in Kamala Harris fate as a one term president and, and, and vice president set up. But, um, you know, I really think he's going to suffer the wrath um, and perhaps that'll make people realize that they can't just do whatever they want, but uh, it may just infuriate them and, and, and fire them up even more. So, uh, yeah, the last thing we need is uh, Trump to be a martyr in this country. Uh, that's for sure. Dude, I love Twitter. Twitter is fucking going off on the memes. It's like $750 billion a year in defense budget. It's like a picture of like Paul Blart, like running away from the Capitol building. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Duck Dynasty and uh, Duck Dynasty guy took over in a few minutes. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's unfortunate. I mean, what, what could we do with seven hundred and fifty billion uh, besides get really stoned? Uh, the, the endless endless salvation could be delivered with that kind of money. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, we do have RJ's good friend who uh, he says in the episode he met in Jamaica, which is kind of making me think that this whole fucking Jamaica trip with Adam Hill high times and all these people, I feel like me and the listeners out there really missed out. So uh, hopefully you guys feel that way after listening to this conversation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a beautiful, it was a beautiful thing. I mean, it was one of those, you really had dedication to show up, but I mean, I remember saying if they're going to do a legitimate cannabis cup in Jamaica, I'm not going to miss it. Um, and, you know, I think that may have been the only year that they actually did it down there. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I think we talked about it with, with Adam Hill on, on his episode, uh, from a few, few, a few moons back, uh, about that trip. So if you didn't catch the Adam Hill episode, go back and check that out and, and, uh, and hear some more or hear a different perspective on that trip. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we all certainly, uh, lived it up. I think I was there for about 12 or 12 or 13 days and, uh, I, I don't think I had a bad, a bad moment. So, yeah, well, I'm excited. So, uh, why don't we cut right to it? Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado. How are we doing today, Christina? Hey, RJ. I'm all right. How are you? Yeah, hanging in there. Like we were just talking about before we came on the air here. It's been a uh it's been a long week. So I'm 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 definitely looking forward to having a fun conversation here, keeping it keeping it a little bit light, not getting too dirty and, and, and too deep in the weeds on anybody that <laughs> you and I might wanna might wanna go in on. So let's let's uh let's hopefully bring a fun one to the listeners today. <laughs> I think we can do that for sure. I know we can. I know we can. Uh, how's everything with you? How's, how's it going on your end? You know, it's been, um, we, 2020 was a crazy year, but it was a super busy year for me and my practice and for my advocacy. And um, I actually started teaching law school uh, this past fall semester. So it's been, you know, it's been a crazy year and the events of the last week have definitely put final spins on Mr. Toad's wild ride. Um, and it's just the gift that keeps on giving, right? Um, but thankfully everyone is healthy and safe. And I think at this time, that's really uh, the most that I can ask for of life. And I hope that, you know, our talking today finds everyone on your end safe and healthy and happy as well. Yeah. 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 I think that's a great point. I mean, miss the chaos. Like you, you can only really appreciate what, what's really the most important, which is exactly that, you know, the, the health and health and safety of everybody that's close to you. So um, usually we start off by having people update us on, on where things are in their life. But I kind of, I, I, and I'm, I'm so excited to hear about the law school stuff. So why don't we do that? Why don't you tell us how, how teaching, teaching law school and what you've been teaching and, and, and as a professor, what that's been like, let's, let's start there and then we'll jump into, uh, to kind of how you got to where you are today. So I, a professor at the Elizabeth Haub, um, law school, which is part of PACE, heard me speak at a conference, and he said to me, would you ever consider teaching? And this is back in 2019. I said, oh, I would love to teach. Uh, and I came up with a curriculum that we, he and I submitted and it was approved. Um, and when I came up with the curriculum, it was, you know, where's the first place that you go? You looked at the internet to see what, what other uh, curriculums might be out there. Comps, right? Comps of the curriculum world. Um, and as you could imagine, there are very few cannabis law courses. There are even fewer that have their syllabus 
syllabi, syllabus, syllabi posted. Um, and then fewer still that actually delve into the world of cannabis beyond simply the legal implications. And what I mean by that is that um, there's only one cannabis law book, and it was really centered on um, the tension between federal and state law and how that nets out in the practice of law, which of course is super important. But um, I wanted to make a significant change. um, And before teaching that, I wanted to make sure that people understood, students understood why this, it is such a big deal that we legalize, in my opinion, uh, cannabis the right way and pay attention to the war on drugs that has decimated communities for, you know, nearly a hundred years, um, and manifested in all sorts of new ways. Um, and so the first part of that class was really dedicated this year to understanding the origins of cannabis prohibition, how this plant went to being part of the pharmacopoeia of everyone's household. Um, and and how it was initially used um, by the Mexican government to to clamp down on in, in indigenous activities, um, and how the United States really borrowed that narrative from Mexico, um, accompanying uh, waves of immigration from south of the border, uh, starting in the twenties, and how both cannabis was used as a way to promote racism. But racism was already in place, too, and cannabis was also a tool. So the duality of that. And then also looking at some really significant studies that were largely overlooked or ignored um, in pursuit of this war on drugs, namely the LaGuardia Commission, um, which basically said in the 40s, hey, this really doesn't pose any societal risk. And then later the Schaefer Commission, um, which was uh, called for by Nixon. And even though the um, result of that was, hey, we should not go about and build and criminalizing this behavior, we should look to not necessarily um, support it, but to go after this uh, uh, cannabis consumption, marijuana consumption at the time, um, is not in, in the country's best interest. And Despite that information, Nixon doubled down and then after, and it just exceeded from there. So talking about the origins and then talking about what it, what gave rise to uh, medical cannabis. And, you know, some of the students I'm teaching are significantly, I'm 44 and they're significantly younger um, than I am. And so AIDS, when you think about HIV and AIDS, medical cannabis is getting um, a lot of attention as a way to uh, combat the wasting syndrome of AIDS. And, you know, some of these, my students didn't have any context for what AIDS was like in the 80s. It's important to understand what the basis of your class is on, because, I mean, obviously you and I have have been friends now for, for a decent amount of time. And, and we've been, you know, kind of in contact about, about what you, you're, you know, you becoming a professor and whatnot. Yeah. So I, it's great to learn more about that. And I mean, the, the, to, I, I never realized that it was, um, it, the, the whole Mexican, the Mexican sort of connection to cannabis and, and the racism thing started in Mexico. I didn't realize that it was the setup um, and that we adopted it. I, I, I never realized that piece of it. Like this is something, and you learn new things every day, but this came out of, because I had been, I, I really am, I'm terrible at zoom and I'm still terrible at zoom and the entire class was over, uh, all over zoom. But I think I made up with 
made up for it with personality. But in any event, I had a test Zoom run over the summer with some friends and, you know, I was, we would just have these conversations um, because I would try to use all the different uh, Zoom facets where I failed miserably. But from one of those is how I learned about it, of the origins, that this was out of the playbook. So it's always fascinating, um, you know, how you can pick up new information. Um, And so even though I teach a law school class on this, uh, I'm, I'm still learning things. What, what else is, it's sort of in that same line, like, um, you know, California uh, had a, a big influx of uh, people from India and, and Nepal, Tibet, that region, the, the, the Asiatic region, um, in the, the turn of the 19th century into the early 20th century. And in uh, California, like that was by and large where cannabis was introduced by was was through these folks that came over from Asia and you know it was part of their their religious cultures whether it's Buddhist or Hindus or what have you so it was very natural for them to cultivate cannabis and use it in that capacity and and that was also another source of um, that sort of that sort of racism was to say you know these these foreigners have come here and are bringing this uh, this this plant here with them as an in, in sort of this invasion of 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 their culture into ours kind of thing. So, it, it, and that was something I learned about uh, you know within the last twelve months or so, and, and through some 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 reading that I've been doing. But it's crazy how you know how how racism and cannabis are so tied together. Yeah. And not to get off in the weeds on that, but I mean it's just it's so it's so crazy how even today we're still we're still seeing that in so many ways. Yeah. And I mean, the collateral consequences around having some kind of cannabis infraction are huge. Now, I mean, there is, you know, there has been movement on that for there was a long time where having um, that would would uh, a drug charge would prevent you from getting school aid or um, assistance. And I think that there's just been a bill passed that would um, would no longer make that applicable, which is huge. And it is in my stack of things to read for this weekend. But, but, you know, we're talking about access to food, access to housing, access to education, access to your kids. It's a part of what I do, um, you know, has really nothing to do with my practice of law, which by and large is transactional work, right? Mm-hmm. I was trained in M&A and, and securities and um, private equity. It's not, I wasn't trained in cannabis. I, I have a longstanding history as a transactional lawyer. Um, and I still perform that function, transactional lawyer, for clients that are predominantly, I think 95% of my clients are in the cannabis industry. But I do a lot of advocacy that has nothing to do with my practice, um, including working on expungement events and wraparound service events in the New York City area. Um, and I'm an advisor to a national expungement organization called National Expungement Week that all over the country and uh, year-round runs clinic and support uh, support programs for individuals that are coming out of incarceration. Um, and so that is, you know, I and that is why I think that particularly New York, um, as we look to legalize here, it is immensely important that we do it right because we have one of the worst uh, records when it comes to the war on drugs um, and the communities that we have policed and imprisoned as a, as a result. Totally. So, I mean, would you say that the, that your, 
the class that you're teaching is is was foundationally rooted in sort of training these folks to understand really where uh, these things went sort of awry and and then sort of how how it's been brought forward is that is that kind of the the, the basis there? Yeah, I mean, I wanted you know the first part again was to talk about the history and also to familiarize everyone with um, terms and and language uh, that's specific to criminalization and the industry uh, and then moving on to there to talk about where the corner, where our corners are with the laws and what gives us the ability to have any kind of cannabis program in this country um, uh, in the States, I should say. Um, and then talking about how you work within those laws to supply clients with advice and for the latter part of, of, of the class, or two, I, I should say that in, throughout the class, we had guest speakers who came from all walks of life. Um, most of them were cannabis, or one, most of them were attorneys, but not all, and all of them had something to do with cannabis, whether that was for record relief, whether it was for equity, whether it was for community reinvestment, or a number of the attorneys I work with in my day to day where, um, you know, we all serve as counsel to one another because we have specific skill sets and bringing them on board to talk about what it is they do in the cannabis industry. So it's a little bit of history. It's a little bit of real world advice um, and practice points. Awesome. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I, yeah. I, I said this, I said this to you before and I'll say it again. I, I wish this had been available when I was, was yeah. in school, but. <laughs> the response was great. I mean, I had a lot of students, people really responded to the class really well and I'm excited to keep on building out the curriculum because it doesn't stop, right? It's not really? static. And so it's, it's, it'll consistently grow and I will teach it differently next time. You mentioned transactional and sort of the, you know, that, that, cannabis and, and sort of the civil rights aspect of it, which is unavoidable, obviously, was not really where you started. So why don't you give the listeners an idea of, of sort of like where your journey started and how you ended up uh, getting involved in cannabis and, and what that looked like? Ooh, okay. Um, so I recently, <laughs> I had to write something down and, and about how long I've been practicing law. It's happened in the last two weeks. And I realized I've been practicing law for nearly... Um, <laughs> for nearly 20 years at this point, because when I was in law school, I was um, part of a, a, a legal clinic. And that legal clinic assisted entrepreneurs who um, lived in Chicago, who were within 200% of the poverty guidelines, open their own businesses and run their own businesses. So you could have issues relating to formation, forming a corporation or forming an, an LLC. Um, to helping them operationally, whether it was with a business plan or um, helping them with a lease um, or helping them with agreements for uh, distribution or supply. And so that's really where I started practicing law. And it was the only part of law school I truly enjoyed. And they allowed me to bring my dog. So I, I would just hang out at the clinic with my dog, Rocco, pretty much all of the time. Um, but it was an incredible learning experience and I really saw there that I loved working with entrepreneurs and furthering their businesses. So, um, <laughs> I did not follow that path. When I left law school, I went to a large firm, um, largest firm, I should say in Chicago and then a large firm in back home in New York 
where I practiced um, in the M&A and private equity and securities departments of each. Um, so I made rich people a lot of money during the years that I did that. Um, found myself as a general counsel of an international tech company following that. And then, you know, eventually I landed at high times where I replaced Michael Kennedy as the general counsel um, when he became chairman. And that's how we met. We, <laughs> we met at the um, World Cannabis Cup in Jamaica. And that was one, that I finally look upon that those five days is some of the more interesting days a lawyer could ever have in her career. That entire um, experience, high time was a really just a, a unique experience for a lawyer. And I'm so grateful to have had it. Um, and then after that, I was a partner in a um, license holder out in Oregon. And, you know, I've had always since 2008, maybe, I've always had some semblance of my own firm, whether that was, you know, I was working part time um, at that because I always wanted to be able to entertain um, um, work from friends and family and and take on work that I just thought was interesting that might not, you know, be full time work. Sure. Um, so I've had that for, you know, a very long time. And in 26, at the end, in the beginning of 2017, at the end of 2016, I should say. There had been so many people who were interested in cannabis and saying, you know, oh, well, you've had this crazy experience. Um, would you consider doing work? And I had been turning it down. And then I said, you know what? I'm going to start to say yes um, because our apartment burned down. And I was like, well, I'm, you know, there's, if you had thought about, oh, let's try something else. I, I really was going to try and raise my own fund and use the funds that I raised uh, to plug capital into smaller cannabis industries. But um, I, that was certainly far riskier than just, you know, officially hanging my shingle and letting people know about it. So that's how I ended up with this iteration of, uh, Christina Bucola council. Um, <laughs> and the reason I got into cannabis in the first place was, you know, my dad is, has a really terrible case of Parkinson's and I started exploring cannabis as a modality to help him. Um, with, and that's how I ended up getting involved in cannabis in New York and ending up at high times. Totally. Well, um, a lot that I have questions about, or would love to ask you about here. So we'll see, we'll see, uh, how deep we can go here. But, um, when you, when you went to high times initially, were you, were you looking at that as like a cannabis position or did you see that more from like the, the M and a world that you would kind of come from, from the, the business world, um, given that, you know, the, the, the transcorp and, and, you know, the, the yeah. you obviously know the structure better than, than I do, but maybe you could sort of elaborate on that and, and maybe include some of the, the top level on just how that's the, the high times thing is set up, um, for, for listeners out there that might be interested in it. Well, I don't know. I mean, this is a while ago and sure. they've gone through an acquisition or I should say a divestiture acquisition and who know, I have not followed, um, up with, with the, the, <laughs> the corporate structure of, um, high times, but, um, there, you know, high times really consisted of the magazine and the cups. Um, and so when I, I went to high times because it was, it fully was within my wheelhouse of having of general counsel, right. I was accustomed to being the general counsel of an international company. So, um, you know, this is just a different industry. 
And so I didn't, you know, I did not go uh, to high times because it was high times. I went to high, high times because it was a company that needed a general counsel, oh. if that makes any sense. It just so happens that it was cannabis related. And I, I was, and I had been for a number of years before that, um, you know, curious to see if for no other reason, whether, whether cannabis could help my dad. And so it, I went in, Michael Kennedy hired me within 30 minutes and there I was a couple of weeks later after the Christmas break. Got it. Got it. What was that like? Did you, did you get a, a chance to work with Michael Kennedy? I mean, obviously a, a fixture and, and, yeah. and high times has been, been around and has, has done some pretty amazing things regardless of, of <laughs> the current status of things or the past couple of years anyways. But, um, and obviously still doing impressive things, but, but, you know, a lot has changed in the last couple of years as they've, as you said, have worked towards going public and whatnot. Yeah, he was, I did get to work with him. Um, and he it was wonderful working with him because he definitely gave me um, the breath to do what I needed to do in certain regards. But, um, you know, to talk with him as a sounding board was a really incredible experience. Um, and there were, you know, there were policy considerations. Um, where should high times fall on this? Where should we fall on that? What do you think about this? And those were my favorite conversations to have with him overall. Awesome. Awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, for those that weren't in Jamaica with us in <laughs> 2015, um, that, you know, that, that experience of going down there was, was pretty amazing. And I'll just shout out Adam Hill, who was on a couple of episodes ago, he was down there and that was probably the first time that I'd really hung out with him as well. But, um, you know, can you maybe walk us through some of the the challenges that, that were there? And, and I, I mean, there was that story that I remember you you know, you telling about, I think they were, they were concerned with the use of the, the Rastafari flag or something in the high times logo. I mean, there, there was definitely some stories that came out of, uh, I think you called them reasoning sessions as, as they were, yeah. they are properly called. I will uh, tell that I won't get into the nitty gritty sure, of sure. everything, but I will say this. So you're trained as an attorney, you know, this, that Possibly. Um, all, <laughs> All contracts or all well-drafted contracts should contemplate some kind of dispute, right? Where you're going to have the dispute, who's allowed to hear the dispute, um, perhaps fees around the dispute. Just just rules of engagement should there be a dispute. Totally. So for the contract that we, because, you know, I, we needed to negotiate an agreement with um, a Rastafarian house, which I don't, you know, I think that traditionally arrangements and agreements with Rastafari are memorialized, not with contracts and not in written words. So it was, um, it was very cool to actually, and, and their counsel, um, was, uh, Rastafari, um, as well. And so it was a really, it was, we got them to sign. Uh, and one of the conditions was, you know, I wanted to say if there was going to be a problem, um, we would go to court in Miami and they were not down with that. And so I was like, okay, there's really only one area of this contract that I care about litigating in Miami. If things get go wrong, everything else, what do you want? They're like, we have something called the reasoning session. And I said, what is that? 
I mean, basically you gather and you reason it out. And that is their alternative dispute resolution mechanism. And I was like, you know what? Great. For all matters except this one where you will go to Miami, we will do a reasoning session. And that was memorialized in the agreement. Um, And there were some times that things needed to be discussed. And in fact, um, multiple, multiple times during that trip, um, I found myself sometimes alone, sometimes with others in reasoning sessions. Um, And so it was, you know, a a cultural contracting um, variant that I had never experienced before. And but not four high times, probably would have never experienced it at all. Rockers is one of my favorite movies. I don't know if you've ever seen, if you've ever seen it. It's a, it's a classic, you know, late seventies, you know, set in Jamaica. It's about Steel Pulse and and all these other musicians, Jacob Miller and, and, and the, the kind of gamut of, of sort of the, the, the next wave of the whalers, if you will, that, that whole group of, of, of time. And, um, there's there's one scene where they kind of there's a little bit of an argument in the movie and and one I forget who says it I think it may have been um, I think it was uh, someone from from Burning Spear and then uh, oh gosh I forget who the other uh, the other person I'll, I'll come back to it later but uh, they sit down like they they say something to the effect of like sit down and, and let's reason let let's reason yeah. with each other yeah exactly. Yeah. That is a reasoning session. Yeah, so it, it's it's interesting that that's ingrained in their culture, just between regular people, right? Like we have a disagreement, let's sit down and reason, and and then you, as this you know M and A corporate counsel, coming down and, and participating that in, in a very formal, but yet I would assume somewhat informal fashion. Still, it, it must have been some kind of experience. Well, the, I had had so going from a, a very proper law firm to in-house as uh, in tech, right? You start to, the way you practice law changes because your back office function and everyone in the front office is your client. So you have to get to yes, which is not something that you necessarily have to get to at a law firm because your job is to advise as to the legal risk, et cetera. But when you're working with a business team in-house, you have to figure out a way to get to yes. And so I had already had, you know, six, five, six years of getting to yes um, prior to the time I had, uh, I showed up at high times, but then it was even a different layer of getting to yes, because, because not only, this isn't only for um, uh, the Rastafari that um, we worked with, but there are a lot of other people who, you know, are custom, whether they be out in, um, in Humboldt or somewhere else um, in the triangle, uh, they're not accustomed to signing agreements and it's more of a handshake arrangement. So um, part of what's interesting with any industry, but I think particularly cannabis, is how do you get people um, to get comfortable making arrangements where they haven't done so and, you know, again, getting to that yes, getting people to sign so that there's something memorialized uh, that you can fall back on, but also understanding um, the culture of paperwork isn't necessarily there. So how do you find uh, the, the, the happy point between the two? Um, 
I remember you telling me something along the lines of a contract that was put in front of you from uh, it related to high times where someone said uh, had a clause written that said they would show love. Yeah, that's my favorite. It was texted to me. Yeah, someone texted yeah. me, and it was like we in I, yeah. What I I believe so. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. It I think it was high. It was high times. And, yeah. and some, yeah. you know, and they were like, well, we'll show you love, but what does that mean? Right. And I, I was like, I'm down with this term. We just have to actually spell it out somewhere, you know, yeah, so, define what showing love is, you know, is showing love, distributing 500 stickers is showing love doing this is showing love doing that. Call it showing love. I don't care, but I just want to know what it consists of. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so high times you, you, you took off from high times and, and kind of got into, you know, running CB council and, and really making, making that focus on cannabis. So can you talk uh, about some of the things that you've done there, some of the projects that, that you've liked working on and, and kind of what your focus has been, uh, through the, the last couple of years and, and that side of it? Yeah. And so, um, I'm, the interesting thing about cannabis law, and it, I mean, you, we now have cannabis legal markets that are significantly grown with really great practitioners, but um, there also are a lot of people who get into cannabis law that don't have fundamental understandings of business law, right? And so um, I've seen a lot of attorneys come into this work from criminal defense, which is something I could never do, right? Like criminal defense is not my forte. If I show up for you in court other as other than for moral support, run. That's not what I do. Um, but, you know, understanding how businesses are put together, how to raise money, um, who does what in a business, um, and then other corporate matters, but particularly organization and getting capital. Uh, that practitioners with a, a good, um, healthy understanding of that, uh, in the markets where I practice weren't necessarily, um, known to me. And so over the last couple of years, um, I've served as general counsel to a lot of license holders or prospective license holders. But then I also have a number of clients who come to me either for, um, uh, to help uh, to help them raise capital um, through private transactions um, or uh, enter new lines of business, whether or not they want to divest some of their assets. I've done, I think this year, or not this year, oh my God, it's this, this year, meaning last year. So in 2020, I think I did, I handled maybe, t- uh, I think 10 M&A deals in cannabis. Um, which is a lot for, I think, anyone, but certainly a lot for me. Christina, let's, uh, let's maybe take a step back. So I noticed that you didn't, uh, we, we love to throw humble brags out on this podcast. University of Chicago, not a big deal, but <laughs> from University of Chicago, like, uh, were there any peers <laughs> that you went to school with that somehow kind of took the path that you took? It's possible. I mean, To be frankly honest with you, um, law school was probably the lowest point in my life. I've never been more unhappy than I was in law school. So I I certainly hope that other people were happier. Um, I I, I don't know if I don't know of any classmates who are in cannabis. I'm sure there I'm I'm sure that there are a number who have decided to go off um, and, and hang their own shingle. 
and I'm sure that there are others who went in house. I haven't. I went into law school never thinking I'd pra- practice a day of law in my life. So I think from the outset, I had a different understanding of what my law school education was going to look like. Um, and and yet here I am, you know, 20 years later, actually practicing law. So I don't say I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me if no people took much. Um, uh, straighter paths and uh, maybe without as many stumbling blocks as, as I did. <laughs> Were there any opportunities for advocacy uh, in the space uh, so early on in the 2000s? Or were you just kind of discovering, uh, you know, more about cannabis in the industry, like before kind of, uh, you know, the puzzle pieces fell into place there? I graduated law school in 2003. And, you know, I I have been always minded that drugs should, drugs in general, period, should not be criminalized um, and in some cases legalized um, and and in some cases regulated for an actual industry. Um, I was not doing it, but cannabis was not on my radar until much later. Like I, I went and I was a corporate attorney. There weren't, there might have been opportunities on the West coast, but I was in the Midwest and then back on the East coast where there are, you know, absolutely were no opportunities, legal opportunities. Yeah. And, and Alec, it, it, like, like normal New York, normal, I and mean, this isn't a knock or anything and it's maybe it's changed, but from, from the mid two thousands to the time that I, even when I was in law school, like New York normal basically didn't exist. Like there was no, there was no like real movement in New York to try to, to like legalize it beyond, you know, like a handful of people. It, it wasn't like it is today where everybody and their brother and sisters out there, um, you know, posting, posting stuff up and fighting for the leaf and all this other stuff. It, it was very, uh, it was a very sort of low time. I mean, when I, I was in law school in, in, Oh, you know, 08 to 2011 in New York. And I remember probably in, even in 2009 or 10 sitting there and talking to, you know, these part-time adjunct professors who are teaching a, a night class or something to, to, to three L's. And, you know, they're like, Oh, well, what are you going to do when you get out of here? And you're like, I'm going to do cannabis law. And they're like, cannabis law in New York's never going to be a thing, you know? And, and so there, there was a real sort of, uh, a lack of belief that this was ever going to change uh, as rapidly as it has. And, and I think the 2000s on the East Coast were certainly a, a lull of, of activity, uh, it, it, at least from, from my experience. And Christine, it sounds like you had the same sort of experience. And well, there are definitely people who were on the front lines. Um, and, and Doug is one of the ones that, that comes to mind and we lost him, but also yeah. Noah Potter. And we, you know, we also had like Dick Gottfried, who is a New York state assembly member who proposed the first um, decriminalization, decriminalization bill, which we've had decriminalized uh, cannabis in New York since 1977. Although you wouldn't know it from the last nearly 50 years of arrest records. Right. Uh, there have been people who have always, you know, put this, um, first and foremost, but they're the, the kind of backing that you see now was, was in no way present. I mean, you had your dedicated advocates, but not like you have now. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, that the, the decriminalized statute and you, know, you can have 25 grams or less on you in New York, as long as it's not not out in plain view or burning. Right. Um, you know, I mean, I, I got out of going to the tombs on that a couple of times. And, you know, every time you brought it up, a cop, the cops would roll their eyes and be like, these fucking assholes know what's going yeah. on. Like, I, I got to basically give this guy the ticket or let him go or we're, we're going to get we're going to have it. We're going to get in trouble. Like something's going to not going to go well if this person knows what's going on. Well, and then you had during, you know, stop and frisk for, for decades, you had it that it, during these stop and, and, and frisk stops that um, cannabis would frequently or could be turned up out of people's pockets. And then that would be an exception to the out of sight rule. And so people were, in fact, um, arrested on, on small possession uh, charges routinely, right? And Myself included through stop yeah. and frisk. Yeah. 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 Uh, so shout outs to Midtown Precinct for that experience. That was- <laughs> um, do, do you, Christina, have you seen in your, in your class at all? Have, did you, what, what was the breakdown of students like? I mean, is it mostly people that are looking to figure out how to make money off of being a cannabis lawyer? Is it, was it advocates that were there? I mean, what, what was the breakdown of, of the, the class structure? And I'm sure with COVID and being remote and stuff, it wasn't maybe as, uh, and who knows, maybe, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but um, did, do you, do you have any kind of color on, on that piece of it? Um, I never did a formal, um, Q and A. I do think that there was a mix of people who were just curious in the topic, individuals who really want to make their, their living as, as a cannabis attorney, which I also kind of roll my eyes at because that's like saying you're a beef attorney. Like for, I get it for, you know, quick intros, you're a cannabis attorney, you're this, you're that. But, uh, but when you really get down to it, what is a cannabis attorney? Is it a licensing attorney? Is it a transactional attorney? Is it a litigation attorney? It's all of these things, right? right. And so I always, and, and I would say this throughout the class, very important that you get really good at something and then apply it to cannabis. Yeah. Um, yeah. Totally. But, you know, cannabis being a quote unquote cannabis lawyer, I think is now people really want to do that, which again, what does that mean? You're, you're okay at a lot of little different things or you have a specialty in, in, and, and you apply it to the cannabis field. Anyway, I also do think that there were a number of individuals who were going into, um, pu- uh, going into public defender offices. Mm. Um, and prosecutorial offices were kind of curious as to how cannabis legalization might impact what they're doing next year. Totally. Um, so it was a mix. Yeah. And, and, and that's a great point, right? I mean, that's, it, it makes sense that it's a mix because there is such a mixed bag around yeah. what that means to be a attorney that's affiliated with cannabis in some capacity, right? I mean, are you, you know, just a transactional attorney who's setting up businesses and, and, and helping startups, or are you, you know, uh, you in house somewhere that and focused, you know, really not focused on cannabis at all, but again, focused on deal making or, or yeah. real estate acquisitions, right? Like things that yeah. really don't have anything to do with um, what a public defender or a, a politician or maybe even a prosecutor would be interested in uh, on, on the cannabis side, and, and that that's a it's a really interesting point to chew on. Yeah. Um, and so, and it was, it was one of the best classes we had is we, um, had guests in from a different class and we had the, the, our, my students taught those students and everyone just had a blast. And so, 
I'm really excited to teach this class again because I, like I men- mentioned, I'm going to teach it differently. Um, uh, because truth be known, it's really hard to teach a two hour, uh, zoom class once a week, sometimes twice a week for makeup. Um, not the easiest thing to do. Uh, but I, I, I do think that I, you know, you, you really start to understand how a curriculum comes together and you start to develop a personality, a teaching personality of your own. So curious to know what that looks like on my end going forward. <laughs> nice. Nice. Is, is, is that something that you see sort of expanding for you over time is, is maybe, uh, you know, as this kind of becomes more of, of a commonplace curriculum and, and, and maybe expanding into other sort of electives or, or drilling down into certain pieces of it. Do you see that sort of being the path here for, for you or um, do you think you'll be more focused on the CB council side or is it just going to continue to be a mix of, of both and see how it goes? I want it to be a mix because the fact of the matter is I've been doing this for a long time and there are a lot of different parts to law that feed me. And, and when I feel, not financially or even culinarily, but spiritually and, and mentally and emotionally. And the, I'm practicing law a very specific way for very specific reasons. I need to do my transactional stuff, but I need to do my advocacy. And I'm really liking the educational part. So the educational part will definitely continue in some form or format. But to be able to blend the three together and live my life and make a living doing it has been awesome. Absolutely. I, I want to shift uh, gears a little bit here, but um, yeah. maybe you could talk a little bit about what New York legalization, where it is now. I think Cuomo just called for legalization. Yeah. So all the Tilray stocks are, are, are pumping and dumping as usual. Um, and, and so, I mean, is that is that a real thing for this year? What, what are your thoughts yeah. on that kind of stuff? Yeah. I think we're absolutely getting it this year. So let's talk about how that's going to happen. We have a standalone cannabis uh, legalization regulation um, bill, and that's called the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act. It's the same bill that has been um, filed by Crystal People Stokes and um, Liz Kruger in New York State. It's the same one has been filed this year. Uh, And that is one bill. The other bill um, is a bill called the CRTA, which keeps on coming up as part of Cuomo's um, budget process for the last three years. Excuse me. And so between those two pieces of legislation, we kind of have an idea of how um, or what I should say cannabis legalization will look like. Just, you know, the framework of of, um, things to come. Uh, one I think is superior to the other, um, but it's yet to see how this is going to shake out. Um, Cuomo, in fact, did say he committed again to getting it passed this year. And he said that this is going to be focused on, um, you know, on, on restorative justice. What that actually looks like is yet to be seen. Um, if the CRTA of the of past years, that's his budget bill. Um, is any indication there are going to be things that are left unsaid that should be said or should be spelled out. Um, and he, but this is a year, right? We're facing an ungodly uh, budget deficit in the state. And everyone's looking to, everyone always looks to cannabis to, to patch up their budget deficits. What's, what 
particularly devastating, and you know, DPA has done research to this end, is that those communities that were hit hardest by the war on drugs in New York also hit hardest by COVID, right? And so when we're talking about COVID relief and and um, and funneling monies into relief for COVID, we're also talking that they would be an overlap to, to feeding cannabis revenues into those same communities, um, not for reinvestment, because the argument is, were they ever invested in, in the first place? Uh, so it, that's going to be one of the most curious things that I have my eye on um, and, and fighting for where the taxation revenues really go and, and making sure that there are licenses that are not um, that don't require such crazy capital contributions or commitments that smaller businesses and members of the legacy market are able to easily use those licenses as on ramps to the new cannabis industry. So, yeah, so, I mean, it sounds like things are, things are going to kind of, kind of go forward depending on what, which one of those bills is the one that hits. Well, we'll get it. You know, we are getting it. I'm, I'm almost, I, I would I would bet a hundred dollars that we're getting it this year. What it's exactly what it's going to look like unclear. And then even when we pass a bill, still kind of unclear because the regulations will, which will be written after the legislation is passed, will spell out a lot of these details, right? And so it's kind of like a peek and boo, peekaboo, wait and see. You know, you might see a little bit. And then as things are developed and, and regulations roll out, you'll have a more fulsome understanding of what these licenses look like. And, and what do you think on the, the, the federal side, Christine? I mean, are we going to see something similar with, with Biden-Harris or do you, do you see this, you know, kind of being just another you know, set of politicians that are probably give us maybe a little bit of hope? But, I mean, is it going to happen or, you know, are we again, uh, you know, seeing, seeing more hope than, than reality here? I don't no, I think that, and, and all right. So there, are, it, I think that depends on how long Joe Biden is actually president. I don't, I don't, right? And and so there are people who are like he's out within the six, first six months. I don't think that's the case, but I also don't think he's any kind of great friend to cannabis or any kind of great cannabis reformer. And his new pick for AG, you know, it says let's defer to the DEA because they're the scientists. So if we have the DEA leading uh, our, our cannabis legalization policy federally, I don't know that we're going to see that. However, there are you know pieces of legislation that are um, going to be up for a vote in the Senate, namely the Moore Act, which is a way conceivably that um, we could see a federal legalization plan. And that's not to say I think that the Moore Act is severely lacking in some of those um, in, in some important ways around equity and access for licensing. Um, but it's possible that, that a bill is passed to legalize. I just, I don't think that I'm not holding my breath that no. we're going to, no, I'm not holding my breath for anything. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, <laughs> I saw, I saw that, uh, I saw the AG pick and that decision or the statement that was made around that yesterday. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I, I've been saying this for years that if you think this is just going to change because of, because some, somebody says it's going to in terms of a politician, uh, you're, you're, you're very confused. There's way too many forces at play 
Um, and if, if you're going to rely on, you know, an AG who says, let's rely on the DEA, like good luck changing that until there's enough money to change their mind. And, you know, small mom and pops or, uh, even the, the biggest private uh, actors are not spending the lobby dollars to change the minds of the DEA. So yeah, I, I don't, I don't see a ton happening uh, if, if that's the approach that's going to be taken. Um, and, and yeah, neither, neither Biden nor Harris are, are, are friendly to cannabis in the past. Um, it's, it's, it's sort of uh, almost comical to think that Kamala Harris with what she, she kind of destroyed in California would somehow be this, demagogue for cannabis legalization now that you know she's in the position that she's in but who knows maybe 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 it, it changes but i i really don't see uh, the rush to legalization that so many people are banking on now that the senate is is positioned with with democrats or at least a 50 50 split so um i, I don't know we'll, we'll certainly all want something to be different but um not only does it change but it's the same thing as prop 60 uh, prop 64 in california right like 51% of the people wanted it to, to become legal, but 49% of them didn't want it to become legal through this bill in essence. Right. So um, what is the structure of the laws that get passed is really, I think what we should be asking about rather than, is it going to be legalized or not? Um, and and I, I think, you know, reading into the more and more that that has me a little bit concerned about, you know, things around uh, federal taxes and, you know, how the SBA is going to get involved and, and what, what do all these things actually mean for uh, small state run businesses that are that are going to be the most impacted by it and, and can't just hire, uh, you know, a, a $500,000 a year in-house counsel to navigate uh, the scene, you know. We, we shall wait and see. It's It'll be fun for all of us. Quickly uh, to wrap it up for us, give us social media's contact. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. On social media, I'm at CB Council, C-O-U-N-S-E-L, on Twitter, on IG, and Clubhouse, which is my new favorite thing. Clubhouse. Well, look at you. You're, you're progressive as could be with this technology. I really am not. Um, but someone uh, signed me up, and it's very addictive. There you go. There you go. Well, Christina, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a a great conversation as it always is with you. And uh, we'll hopefully have you back on sooner than later and grab some more of your time to dive into uh, New York legalization as it unrolls. Yeah, I would love, I'd love to come back and chat about it. Awesome. Okay. Talk soon. All right. Well, Christina, as always, is uh, a knowledge dropper. You know, she's, uh, she knows what's going on and uh, knows how to get it done. Uh, that's why I've always kept her close to close to my corner. So uh, I, I really enjoyed that conversation, and and pretty awesome that she's involved in uh, you know teaching people uh, how, how to uh, how to progress this thing from the legal side. Yeah, dude, was it just me or as she was talking like about especially what she's doing at Pace University and the, the cannabis policy class, I literally felt like I was in the classroom, like had no idea about like the Mexico scene and what she was talking about till now. Yeah, I, I never knew the the part about it being used in Mexico against indigenous people, but it sort of makes sense. And I mean, it's the point I was excuse me talking about um, in California, where, again, uh, the Asiatic societies who have relied on cannabis for thousands of years um, you know, they, they really were, um, were, were persecuted and, and, and treated, 
you know, with, with, with intense racism for growing a plant that now California um, has been overrun with, uh, you know, carpetbaggers and white people growing pots. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's sort of, uh, again, you know, a lot of this has this, that conversation, this conversation with Christina has me really thinking about uh, the inherent racism that has always existed in this country and that we've been trying to rid uh, how we've always talked about cannabis as the great equalizer and the great connector. But at the same time, I mean, um, there's two different societies or two different uh, types of, of people, nationalities that that have come to this country uh, and been persecuted for it and, and resulted in uh, the criminality of a, a plant that grows wild on, on the sides of roads in, in any country in the world. So um, another great informative conversation where, you know, uh, I love learning too, Alex. So that was, uh, that was awesome to, uh, to pick that piece up. And, and again, to, to learn that, um, you know, that, that Christina is involved in educating, uh, you know, the, the regular folks out there, not, never mind people like us. It's, uh, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's God's work, but it's damn close to it. Yeah. You know, one of, I wrote down two quotes that really struck me and I, wanted to make it a point to bring it up to you all right ready first uh this is more of a laugh than anything and we should probably definitely get this on a t-shirt if i show up for you in court for anything other than moral support run i just thought that was hysterical but my actual point was uh you know she mentioned you know you are a fellow lawyer rj you did go to law school and she said that law school was one of the lowest points in her life do do a lot of people feel that way about law school because you know, she said it and I kind of was like, I don't know, law school is tough as shit. Like I could kind of see why like that's the case. Talk to me about your experience in law school. Yeah. And my guess is because um, Christina went to such a respected in uh, University of Chicago, you know, I'm sure that the competition there was much more intense than where I went to school. Um, it, meaning that the people there took the competition more seriously. Obviously, people were competitive uh, in my law school, people wanted to be on law review and all that stuff. And, and, and obviously those people did that thing and, and good, good for them. Hats off. Hopefully they're making a lot of money or wh- whatever they got out of that. But, um, I can imagine that being a, a very lonely competitive scene for somebody who's not from the Midwest, you know, at the end of the day, university of Chicago is a very conservative place to learn law. It's a, a, a institution, uh, within this country of, of producing conservative, uh, lawyers, judges, etc. And so again, it's not, a, it's a humble brag, as you'd like to say, but, um, you know, I, I think that obviously everyone's experience is unique, but, um, I could totally understand what that would be like if, if I had been there, uh, I probably would have felt the same way. So I think it's props to her that she got through it and, and has created a tremendous career that's had impact in, in so many different industries. Um, and, you know, really the, the, I think the thing that, that I still, haven't really wrapped my head around is like the working with Michael Kennedy um, on, on, on the behalf of high times, you know, I mean, the high times, what it's become now and, and some of the, the dirt that you can dig up on high times um, from the past, it is what it is, but the, the sort of the, the piece uh, to the counterculture to the, the cannabis revolution that high times played um, is, is to be, you, you cannot be denied. And, you know, really high times was a counterculture magazine, a, a revolutionary magazine, um, that was designed to, to deliver, uh, you know, not only the prices of, uh, of Coke in Miami, but, but some really interesting thought processes around, 
the protection of 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 the amendments, the Constitution. You know, if you if you look back into the older articles pre pre nineties. Um, you know, there's, there's some really amazing stuff that was written about it. And even throughout there was, but, um, you know, I, I can't imagine the experiences that, that Christina must've had, and hopefully she'll come back and join us and maybe we can dig deeper into, uh, to some of those Michael Kennedy memories further, but, but, uh, just a, a tremendous career, a tremendous story. So yeah, I was, I, that was a great one. Yeah, I, I love that she she mentioned the idea that like her experience in Jamaica, especially from like a legal framework about dealing with like different cultures and and stuff like that, like that was like one of the highlights of her career and definitely a memory she'll never uh, forget. Uh, you know, we keep talking about body, mind, wellness stuff on this podcast. And uh, I think what I got out of that was put yourself in an uncomfortable situation, right? Like she adapted to them and, you know, she stepped outside of her comfort zone and she grew from that. And I think at least that's what I learned. And I, hopefully, you know, you took something out of that as well. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I think the, the times that you, you step outside of the comfort zone are the times that you find the most progression. Right. So, I mean, I, I, again, I'm not surprised that, um, someone as smart as Christina is dedicated and determined to succeed as she is, as I know her to be, um, you know, stepped up and got that done. I mean, it, you, you, you know, she, she's very straightforward. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Educate me. And if we agree, then we'll go forward from here and, and we'll go forward from there. So, uh, I think that's the best way you can approach business in general, right? It's like, don't go in there with the expectations. It's going to be done the way you want it to be done, but go in there and figure out how the other side wants to do it and see if it makes, makes sense for you. And if it's plausible to do it that way, um, you know, it's the old idea of listening to learn rather than listening to talk. So, you know, it's something something that I teach all my sales folks over at the old outspoke.io. Um, you know, the, the the words that are coming out of your uh, client partner's mouths are way more important than the words that are going to come out of your mouth. So, yeah, yeah. Well, hey, RJ, let's uh, let's let's shift gears here. RJ strand of the week. RJ's pick of the week. Let's hear it. Ready? Five, four, three, two, one. Hit me. I'm going to shout out uh, my buddies from Cherry uh, out in Colorado. Um, one of uh, their strains that I have been chewing on lately is this Dank Doe. Uh, it's a Gelato 41 cross. Uh, it's got Skittles and Dosey Doe in it. Um, I mean, it's just a, a super dank fucking gelato sour vibe to it. Um, and you know, I mean, good people run by, uh, Noriega, the, uh, rapper, you may remember him from back in the day, Alec, you were probably about eight when he hit, but, uh, you may remember some of his tunes. He had that song, super thug. That was, that's still to this day bangs. Um, and <laughs> great people, great, uh, great quality medicine. Uh, and so shout outs to cherry in Colorado. Uh, if you haven't picked up some stuff from them, definitely check them out. For sure. For sure. Well, I think that just about does it, folks. I think we so. It was, uh, as always, RJ, it's a pleasure, man. Really enjoyed wow. that one. A wonderful pleasure. And thanks again, Christina. And uh, we'll uh, talk to all you listeners soon. Peace. Oh,